Congregation, our text for this Good Friday service is taken from the chapter that we have just read from, chapter 19, but now the verses 38 to 42, where it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. As far as the reading of our text, after the proclamation of the gospel, let's sing the new proposed hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there has never, ever been a week quite like it. It began six days earlier on Palm Sunday with crowds of people welcoming our Lord Jesus into Jerusalem with palm branches and shouts of acclamation. But thereafter, it soon deteriorated into a flood of unspeakable events. Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane by a band of soldiers and officials led by one of his twelve disciples, Judas Iscariot. And he is taken to Annas, the Jewish high priest, and there he is accused and insulted. And thereafter he is dispatched to Pilate, the Roman governor, who questions him and doesn't quite know what to do with him, so he sends him off to King Herod. But Herod, too, doesn't quite know what to do with Jesus Christ, so he asks him all kinds of questions, but Jesus doesn't answer him. And so Herod finally ridicules him and sends him back to Pilate. And so in due time, the pressure mounts on Pontius Pilate. On the one hand, he does not want to put an innocent man to death, but on the other hand, his political future, as the Jewish leaders intimate, hangs in the balance. So what does he do? Ultimately, he caves in to the pressure. So Pilate finally hands Jesus over to be crucified. And then the horrors begin in earnest. Jesus is rejected by the people in favor of Barabbas, a rebel, a criminal, and a murderer. He is turned over to the Roman soldiers who put a purple robe on him and set a crown of thorns upon his brow. And thereafter, the mockery intensifies as well as the beatings. And thereafter, he is led away to be crucified. He's forced to carry his own cross. And when he finally comes to Golgotha, the place of the skull, nails are driven into his hands and into his feet, and into the cross. And the cross is raised with him upon it. Other crosses are raised as well, one on his right side and one on his left side. And there he hangs 
between heaven and earth. And there as well, many people see him, and as they walk by, most of them insult him and ridicule him. Yes, and from there as well, he breathes his last, and he utters his final, final words. All in all, it is a most gruesome spectacle. It is a most hideous thing. And at the same time, we have to say that this event, which took place so many years ago, is approached still today in different ways. There are some who read it about it all and treat it indifferently. Matter-of-factly, something that transpired, transpired thousands of years ago and doesn't really have any implications for today. And there are others who approach it critically or who want to deny that it didn't happen or somehow they want to reinterpret it and make his message much more mellow and less offensive. And then there's us. We who are his followers, his disciples, his believers. How do we approach this particular event and all the events that happened on that Good Friday long ago? I'm sure we do so with a deep feeling of sadness and pain. After all, this is our Savior. This is our Lord. But surely our sense of disquiet has to be somewhat deeper than that. For we know that it weren't just the Romans and the Jews who nailed him to that cross. It was also our sin, your sin and my sin, our trespasses, our iniquities. They condemned him. He bore them all. Willingly, consciously, voluntarily, lovingly, he took them all upon himself. All of our dirty laundry. And of course, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to suffer and die. He, he could have averted it all. He, he says earlier, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. Christ has the power. He can go any way he chooses to go. But he chooses to go this way, this path, in order that he might redeem for himself a people to which you and I belong. And so you see, what happens in that tumultuous week long ago is no accident. It's part and parcel of the great, vast plan of God. There is purpose here, there is intent, there is decision. Christ stands at the center. He's doing His Father's will, and He's doing it for the sake of the Father's people. He's dying for us, giving His life as a ransom. Indeed, he dies so that you and I might live. But then we need to realize, beloved, as well, that this doing the will of the Father doesn't stop at the cross. No, it continues even on into the burial of Jesus Christ. Crucifixion is not the last step on the road of humiliation. It is burial. In spite of that, it often overlooked. Most Good Friday sermons deal with the sufferings of the Lord Jesus or the various confrontations that the Lord Jesus has with Pontius Pilate or with Herod. Well, this morning, 
We're going to look at what happens after the cross to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on that day long ago. I preached to you on the theme, they laid him there, and we're going to see that Christ Jesus is claimed but not forgotten. He is honored but not neglected. He is buried but not discarded. Well, beloved, do you know what happens to the bodies of people who die on Roman crosses? Briefly, they rot. They are left on the cross as a warning to others that this is now what happens to those who defy the will and the power of Rome. It's a death meant for the worst kind of criminals and also for rebels and political upstarts. We know from human history that there were occasions where the Romans would defeat their enemies and then they would take the enemies that they had captured and they would crucify them for sometimes a hundred kilometers on both sides of the road as a witness and as a warning to many. And when these people are crucified, others, of course, walk by and they see them die. And if they walk by a little later on, a few days later, they begin to see their corpses. And then they see as well what the elements do to these bodies hanging there, as well as the vultures. And finally, all that is left is a skeleton. And slowly, the skeleton, too, disintegrates and becomes dust at the base of the cross. And that's the Roman way. Hang them high, hang them long, hang them as a warning to others. But beloved, that is not the Jewish way. For the Jews, it was unimaginable that these bodies should hang there day after day. They understood the message of the Old Testament that such a hanging, such a crucifixion would defile the land. And so they would usually petition the Romans to make sure that the bodies came down that same day. And then they would place them in a special grave, a grave reserved for condemned men and vile offenders. And in that connection, you may remember that when Judas threw the money he had received for betraying Judas or Jesus back at the members of the Jewish council, they, they took the money and they bought a field with it, a potter's field, a field reserved as a burial site for rejects. In any case, as far as the Jews are concerned, Christ is headed for a very well-deserved ignoble death, and also for a cemetery for outcasts and criminals. So, beloved, is that what happens? Does he end up slowly disintegrating on a cross? Does he end up in some sort of despicable grave? Not at all. For as we read our text, we are told that a certain man named Joseph of Arimathea appears, and he goes to Pontius Pilate, and he asks for the body of the Lord Jesus. And as for who this Joseph of Arimathea was, we don't really know. He's called Joseph, but that's a very common name in those days. 
He comes from Aramathea, which actually in the Old Testament is called Ramah, the hometown of Samuel the prophet. And we know as well that from others, from Matthew, that he was a rich man. And finally, we are told that he was a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Only notice that John feels the need to qualify this discipleship of Joseph by adding, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And from this description, it's obvious that this Joseph is one of Christ's invisible followers. Some would put it stronger and say he's one of Christ's scared and chicken-livered followers. He belongs to the category of those about whom the Lord Jesus spoke when he said, but whoever disowns me before men, I will disown before my Father who is in heaven. So has Joseph been a disowner of Jesus? It would appear so. Prior to this incident, he seems to have been governed more by fear of the Jews and what they might do to him than his love for Jesus. Yes, and that always, that kind of a response always draws out the ire of some. Why is this sort of man now introduced to us here? And why is he allowed to take the body of the Lord Jesus down from the cross? And why does he have the honor of burying him? Well, beloved, you know the answer. It's because the Lord our God chooses him. For after all, what happens here is no accident. Had Isaiah the prophet not said many years before that his grave would be with a rich man in his death? Do you really think that the heavenly Father is going to allow his only begotten Son to be forgotten and forsaken on a cross? No, not at all. He calls on Joseph. He calls on this timid believer. He calls on this fear-ridden disciple. He is the man. He is designated. And if you think of it, isn't that a wonderful thing? You know what this means? This means that there is hope and forgiveness and restoration for all who are too afraid, sometimes too weak, too insecure, to stand up for their faith and for their Savior. And doesn't that include all of us as well? Indeed, is God not telling us here that a whole new life of courage and commitment is possible even for those who are weak in the faith. But it's possible only when we look to Him, rely upon Him, and call upon Him for, for strength and conviction. And so it is that God chooses Joseph of Arimathea of all people, he received somehow the courage to go to Pontius Pilate, and that wasn't without risk because Pilate might have considered him to be a follower of Jesus and had him put to death as well. But he goes. As in, you can be sure that Pilate's heart is made mellow here by God. Joseph is given permission to take down the body of the Lord Jesus and to see to its burial. 
But that is not all, for Joseph, I would remind you from our text, does not go alone. He's accompanied by someone else. Yes, and that someone else also represents, you can say, another surprise. For his name is Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? Well, we know a lot more about Nicodemus than we know about Joseph. We learn about Nicodemus way back at the beginning of John's Gospel in chapter 3, where Nicodemus has this wonderful theological conversation with the Lord Jesus about being born again. Maybe you remember it. And the Savior says to him, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And Nicodemus, being a true literalist, thinks that these words of the Lord Jesus are to be taken at face value. And he says, how can this be? How can a man be be born again and, and for a second time enter his mother's womb? Talk about recycling. How is this possible? But of course, our Lord Jesus isn't talking about anything physical or physiological. He's talking about that great spiritual transformation that needs to take place in the heart and lives of all of us. Without the Spirit working this change in us, Christ says none of us are going to see the kingdom of God. We need to be born again. Or if you will, We need to be born from above. And you know, that was the need then, and that's still just as much the need today. There is that great and essential work of God that God has to do to our hearts, to the hearts and lives of each and every one of us, His children. Only then, Will we truly see and really understand the message of the gospel? Only then will we really know what life is all about. And only then will we rejoice in being forgiven and redeemed and renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, there is nothing quite like spiritual rebirth. But nevertheless, that may cause us to wonder about Nicodemus. Here we have, in this marvelous sermon, a man who hears it, but what does he do with it? And look as well at how Jesus, or how John actually, describes Nicodemus. He says he's the man who had earlier come to Jesus by night. And the accent falls on those words, by night. And you know what that means? That means that what we have here is another weak and timid follower of Jesus Christ, another underground supporter, another nervous Nelly. And what was Nicodemus's problem? Well, he was a member of that most powerful Jewish religious group called the Pharisees. And probably he was afraid of losing his his standing and his influence, fearful of being branded 
a traitor and killed along with Jesus. No doubt all of those things went through his mind. And so, in spite of that, in spite of all of that, God still decides not just to work in Joseph, but also in Nicodemus. And as it were, God infuses him and gives him a new backbone. And think of it, isn't that a Good Friday and Easter theme as well? Namely, that God uses these events to change the lives and the hearts of so many people. Not just Nicodemus, not just Joseph, but what about Peter? And what about Thomas later on? And what about all the other disciples and all the other members of the New Testament church? They're all changed as a result of what happens on Good Friday and on Easter morning. And so, Nicodemus accompanies Joseph to Pontius Pilate. It seems that suddenly he is not afraid anymore. And he's focused on the task at hand. He's determined to accord the Lord Jesus a proper burial. Only realize, and we should take note of that, he's not devoted here to just an ordinary kind of burial. No, for John writes as well that Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys about 75 pounds. Now think about it. That, that represents an enormous amount of spices. and We might even say an almost unheard of amount. You know, the cost is stupendous. Earlier in the Gospels, you, you hear about Mary who had paid a lot of money for that little jar of perfume that she poured on the Lord Jesus. And some of the disciples were absolutely appalled. But here, Nicodemus does something similar but even much greater. The spices that Nicodemus is lugging around surpass the unimaginable and the commonly affordable. And so what actually is Nicodemus doing here? You could say that Nicodemus is getting ready not just to bury his Savior, to bury a king. This is almost like a royal burial, for only kings are commonly buried with such a lavish display of alloys and myrrh. Oh, if any of you thought that God the Father was going to allow his son to experience an ignoble burial, you could not be more forsaken, mistaken. If you are of the opinion that Jesus dies as a helpless victim, you have it all wrong. And indeed, take a closer look at John's Gospel. And you'll see that repeatedly the theme of Christ's kingship comes to the fore here. Why, it also comes to the fore in these final days of the Lord Jesus. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replies, I am a king. And later, Pilate tells the crowd, here is your king. And thereafter, a notice is fastened on the cross which says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. In short, the kingship of Jesus is referred to often 
in this part of John's gospel. Yes, and here, as his body is being prepared for burial, it is all confirmed. Nicodemus confirms it. Jesus is going to be honored in his burial as a king. Yes, and so it is that Joseph and Nicodemus, along with the women, go to work. According to the customs of that day, they first wash his body and then they wrap it in strips of linen. And then layer after layer of cloth is applied and between all of those layers there are these spices being spread. I'm sure that the aroma in the tomb must have been rather potent and overpowering. But what then? What will be done with the body once it has been properly prepared? John writes, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish days of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. If you understand these words aright, you cannot fail but to see here the most wonderful providence of our God. For consider here is Jesus Christ. And who is he? Who is Jesus Christ? He's the greatest prophet. He is the unique high priest. He is the all-surpassing king. And you know, that represents a bit of a burial problem. Normally, you bury a prophet with other prophets, you bury a high priest with other high priests, and you bury a king with other kings. But Jesus is so much more than any and all of them. So where is he going to be laid? Where should he be laid? Where is a grave that is fitting for for him? Actually, there is no place, no such place. Or is there? For where Joseph of Arimathea has such a place, he has a new place, a new tomb. He has a grave unlike any other, a grave fit for this Jesus who will soon be crowned in heaven with a glory and an honor that is beyond compare. So that is where he is laid, in a new tomb. But you know there's more. Well, look closely. Look closely and you can see that this new tomb is, is said to be in a garden. John mentions that specifically. And we might tend to just kind of read over that and think of that, well, that's the way it was. That's simply the ordinary way. It's just a minor detail. But John rarely includes details without some significance. I think there's something else going on here. What is going on? Well, think about it for a moment. John says twice Jesus is being laid to rest in a garden. And you know, that opens up a whole different theme in the scriptures, the theme of the garden. You remember at the beginning of time there is a garden, the Garden of Eden, in which Adam and Eve dwelt in which there was beauty and wholeness and fertility and all lovely things imaginable. But of course, man, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. And they were expelled out of the garden. They had violated the conditions of 
God's relationship with them. And the consequence was enormous, especially in terms of enmity with God and death in their life and in all of creation. So a beautiful garden at the beginning becomes a place for no trespassers. Angels are posted to make sure that no one could enter. That's the one garden at the beginning. But you know, there's another garden, and that's a garden at the end of times, which we read about in the book of Revelation in the last chapters, a garden in the midst of that new Jerusalem, that perfect city, that center, epicenter of a new heaven and a new earth. And that's a garden that people can enter, in which there is a tree, a tree for the healing of the nations, a place of fellowship between God and his people once again, intimate fellowship. But then we ask the question, well, how's that possible? At the beginning, we have a garden from which man is excluded. At the end, we have a garden in which the believers are included with God again. How do we explain that, that difference? There's only one way, and that's to look at this garden that we have in our text. This garden in Jerusalem, where the body of Jesus Christ is laid, where the Son of God is put to rest, so to speak. This body of him who reconciles to himself all things in heaven and on earth, and also between God and man. You know, it's because Jesus is put to rest in this garden and through his suffering and death opens up access again to the throne of God that it's possible for us and for all believers to enter into that great garden that's coming in the paradise of God. And so, beloved, as we consider the death of our Lord, and the burial of our Lord, we are reminded that this burial is not just a secondary detail. It's an essential part of the work of the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was buried, but he was not forgotten. He was buried, but he wasn't neglected. He was buried, but he wasn't discarded. He was buried for us, for you and I. Buried that we might every day live this life with a newfound confidence and hope that ours is a life filled with new meaning and new joy and new thanksgiving and new confidence. The Apostle Paul, after he writes about the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers, says finally to all those who are reading what he wrote, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the Lord, what we do in his service is never in vain. Let's pray.
Our Father who art in heaven, we come to thank you, to thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for everything that he has done for us and for our salvation. We thank you, Father, that we have a Savior who suffered for us, a Savior who died for us, who was crucified for us, a Savior who was buried for us, and as well, a Savior who rises for us. Father, the work of our Savior is inexhaustible, and we stand amazed every day that you have given us such an incomparable gift in the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Receive our thanks for him, and bless us in his name. Amen.